Hey everyone, welcome back to Cathedral Conversations about Race. My name is Michael. I'm here with Kara Peterson. Hey, Kara. Hello. Before we get into what tonight's discussion is going to be, well, it's tonight now. I have no idea when you're listening to it, but <laughs> I just wanted to say at St. Mark's, we've gotten so many people who have come up to us in person or who have left messages online to thank us for creating this podcast and for having these conversations. And Kara and myself are incredibly grateful to everybody who has reached out in person, virtually, whatever. We're so grateful that you're listening to these episodes, that you're taking this stuff home with you or to work or to church, wherever. It just means a lot to us that the conversations we're having and the communications that we're doing seem to be really resonating. So thank you very much for being a part of that. Yeah, thank you. You might remember in our last episode, we talked about microaggressions as one of the themes that arose in the conversations that we're having with the guests of St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations about Race. One of the other themes that came up was the topic of representation. To simply put it, how visible BIPOC people are in the world, how visible BIPOC people are in everyday life and how visible BIPOC people are in the things that we take for granted, certainly in everyday life, but also in church life as well. Karen and I took a long time to talk about what representation is, what it looks like for BIPOC people. And there are many layers of representation which we're not gonna unpack in this episode that you're hearing now, but one of the biggest ones that came up was the question of music the question of how BIPOC people are represented in music. And we feel that there is a great degree of relevance to St. Mark's in that question. I do not have any musical background. I do not have any musical training. Fortunately, one of the people in this conversation does. So (laughs) I'm going to turn the keys over to Kara to tell us about what representation in music is, what it looks like, and where St. Mark's is in that. She has given me permission, and thank you, Kara, she has given me permission (laughs) to interrupt her with questions, no matter how inane or how left field they might be, because I have no idea what direction this conversation is going to go in, which is great. So, um, (laughs) Kara, over to you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes. So I I should clarify that uh, when we're talking about music tonight, I'm going to be talking pretty specifically about Christian church music and especially in the United States. And it's not going to be like a long history lesson because frankly, I'm not a musicologist, although we have several of those in our congregation if you're interested. (laughs) However, um, I was just thinking about how, again, when we were trying to figure out how to talk about representation, we realized there were Uh, a couple of different facets that both of us kept coming up with. And one was uh, images of ourselves and how we saw ourselves growing up. Um, And so Michael will talk about eventually, not tonight, uh, but eventually about only seeing white people with blue eyes in Dubai growing up, even though Dubai is not generally a blue-eyed or lighter-skinned country, generally, I believe. I, I guess I've never been, but... Uh, The other really big representation kind of slice is 
in professional, in, you know, community settings, in not just media, but music was the easiest uh, kind of big slice of representation cake, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> that, I, that I know how to, or at least can uh, give my observations on and what my thoughts are on it, because this can apply to all sorts of academic uh, practices and fields and professional fields too. Like many of these themes will sound very familiar, even if you're not a music major or, you know, whatever. Uh, so that all said, I am an Asian American organist. And so these are observations from my standpoint as an organist who has higher education. I have a master's degree in organ and, you know, an undergraduate in sacred music and organ performance. And, you know, that, that was a bit of a miracle of Jesus, if we're to be honest. But I'm not an expert on these sorts of things. So these are all based on what I have seen and what I have, you know, just heard in conversational or, you know, classroom settings. So it's that this is definitely not a, I know everything about this and everything I'm saying is right or anything like this. This is just a kind of a sampler, a, a, like a, a flight taster of <laughs> what representation in church music in the United States, especially the Episcopal church and especially kind of Protestanty uh, areas. So overall, <laughs> as you imagine, uh, church music and especially uh, musicians uh, singing in choirs, playing the organ, doing choir directing in the United States in, have been actually, you know what, let me start that over because, and actually this isn't even necessarily a cut, because historically, because of American segregation laws, <laughs> churches have been separated by color. And, mm -hmm. you know, that that's changing, obviously. And, and like, thank God for it, if, you know, we want to not just have the black and the white churches or anything like that. Yeah. But there was a big disparity there because of all of the economic disparity that existed outside of the sanctuary, mm -hmm. right? So you had generally poorer Black families with, you know, those funds to build up churches and that sort of stuff. And then you had the rich, academically trained Episcopalians and all that sort of stuff who had means and resources to buy bigger, more and better things. And so overall, not as an absolute rule, but overall, white churches tended to have organs and also you know maybe a piano or something like that even through the 19th and definitely into the 20th century poor congregations generally didn't have the money resources or space uh, to put in a piano or an organ um, they both take up a lot of space they're both pretty difficult to move properly uh, as you can imagine and so those congregations actually ended up, you know, relying just on singing. And that's wow. where a lot of the gospel tradition and shape note singing, which uh, we've incorporated into our worship with the flint trop. And, <laughs> question, and so, question. Yes, yes. What is your question? <laughs> you use the term shape note singing. Oh, well, we won't go too far into this rabbit hole, um, but it's, 
it's a style of singing uh, that came basically out of the Appalachian mountain chain. So from basically Northern Georgia all the way up through Pennsylvania. And it's called shape notes because the notation is simplified music and each note is represented by a shape instead. And so it's, it's easier to learn on the go. And it's, so because it was easier to, to learn how to sing that way. And, you know, it was really easy to pick up as people were singing around you. Uh, it wasn't as much of a, you know, a problem necessarily not to have an organ, but that meant that the demographic of people who got the education and training and, you know, like teachers and, and all that sort of stuff. The demographic of people who, who knew this stuff, who, who were educated and skilled enough to teach it must have been mm -hmm. pretty limited. Yes. Yeah, it definitely was. And as you know, as a result, that became, I wouldn't even necessarily say, a, you know, a musical disparity because like, obviously great musical traditions came out with no organ and not even just in the United States. A lot of Eastern Orthodox music is all sung. There's no, no organs in that. So it meant that if there was a person who wanted to play organ or, or like had a piano, that was two major roadblocks. Uh, I guess instrument access is actually the one that I just covered because a lot of, again, generally poor congregations didn't have instruments to practice on. And then the other one was education access. And especially if you even managed to graduate high school, I mean, even going on to second or higher education was near impossible for a variety of reasons like segregation mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. how many universities started admitting black students before they had to in the 1960s yeah. i mean several I, I know actually of all things oberlin college in ohio was the first major music school actually to accept black students i think in the 1850s or 60s nice. and so yeah and but it you know that that was the exception not the rule <laughs> you know and so you know that's just that's a built-in that's a built-in disadvantage that you know black students in particular but non-white students overall always had and then in addition to that um <laughs> a more present day problem remains that music schools are really expensive overall particularly if you want to go to where a certain teacher teaches. Um, and so that's, that's just that the financial roadblock is there and it's that or settling, saddling yourself with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that if, like if, realistically you'll spend the rest of your life paying off. As If you had to ballpark a figure for how much a good music school and i know that is a very vague oh term. very very easily it's it, i mean my school was about forty-five thousand a year and that was a little low overall and i was lucky in that uh, i got significant scholarships to go 
uh, academic and a couple of Oregon ones. And so like that helped a lot. And I'm very grateful to my parents. Thank you, mom, also, because I think you've been listening, uh, footed the rest of that bill. And uh, I ended up paying for graduate school myself. And so I, I have some student debt there, but it's nice to not also have my undergraduate degree to also have to pay off. So thank you, mom and dad. I <laughs> love you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm really grateful for everything, including paying for my college. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> now that that's out of the way, because <laughs> I, I think part of this, when I was thinking about all of this, I will say is realizing that I got really lucky because I basically ended up on the white privileged side of mm. representation in music. Because again, I got two upper degrees, like I, I've sort of inserted myself into Episcopal parishes, but that's, that's on me. Um, <laughs> but this has ended up creating a huge roadblock for usually poor and a lot of non-white students into getting a lot of jobs in or, or what are considered, you know, reputable. And generally the higher paying jobs are still going mostly to white folks and generally men. And a lot of that I have attributed to the two things that I just kind of went over. Yeah. And it's why I get really prickly when I see the term merit-based hiring because that term is always against the white privileged uh, criteria. Now that the way I said that makes it sound really like just terrible and outright racist and stuff. Um, but what really what I mean is even saying like graduate or yeah, graduate degree required or even undergraduate when at this point, one of those can set someone back well over a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and that's just not that everyone's willing to even think about. Or again, if I'm not going to go into that, never mind. <laughs> to interject really quickly, someone a couple of days ago sent me a picture that they took of a billboard that said, entertainment diversity requires opportunity. Um, that someone was am, you, by the way. That someone was me, <laughs> by the way. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's not that non-white folks are not as good at these things. It's that they don't have the same resources. And so the scale is just plain not the same. The scale is not the same. That's perfect. I mean, we talk about systemic racism, and this is an extension of that. This is how mm -hmm. discrimination oh, yes. and prejudice and bias have been baked into a system for such a long time that becomes invisible to yeah. people who have benefited from it to the point where the scale is implicitly and automatically tipped against students and families who do not have access to those resources, who do not exactly would not be able to pay 50,000 mm -hmm. something dollars to get into school and then have those merits to apply for a job or to apply for a position. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And so what this means is even if like you see something where you have two resumes in front of you and one of them has Eastman, which is a music school in Rochester, New York, 
very, very well thought of, but also $50,000 a year, or when I was applying for it, it was. <laughs> uh, but then on the other one, you know, you might have a state university or, you know, something that looks a little less shiny, less fancy or, or anything like that. You're not taking into account that perhaps there's no way the mm. second resume applicant could have ever paid to go to Eastman. But that doesn't mean that they aren't really good, you know, a good organist, for example. And I should clarify that I've been speaking from organ land this whole time, not necessarily singing or choir directing. <laughs> Is it, would it be the same kind of dynamic for singing and choir directing? Um, no, actually, it's a little bit different. Um, choir directing more so, yes, it's closer because uh, a lot of the time, especially, not all the time, but it's really helpful to have keyboard skills when you're a choir director because you can play the parts for people or, or anything like that. And, like it's not usually a deal breaker, but it always okay. helps. Um, but singing, obviously, if if someone has a singing voice, you don't you don't need anything but that person to be able to tell that. Course, and yeah. so traditionally, it's I shouldn't say traditionally, historically, or I've often seen it. <laughs> you can leave all of my thought process. It has been seen. It has been seen. I have observed that singers of non-white backgrounds have had an easier time getting into, like, I, not easier time, but have been less horrendously discriminated against mm. because they are more easily able to be like, here I am, here's my singing voice. And that's not to say that they've never experienced hardship, obviously. Oh, like, yeah. that's, that's, that's it sounds not like there's the a lower barrier of, and I could be phrasing this terribly, but it sounds like there is a lower barrier of entry for singers compared to choir directors, compared to organists. Yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. And I, I, we don't mean that in a, a, like a skill level way. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of singing, like, it's all you need is you. But if you mm. want to play the piano, you need you to need find the piano. piano. Yeah. Do you want to play the organ? You need to have a really rich family who can buy you an organ and put it in your bedroom, or you need to go find a church or a mm. synagogue, or mostly a usually a church. Um, and if you want to be a choir director, you need to find a choir to direct, which is actually harder than it sounds. <laughs> so. <laughs> And so it's it's not that like you know singers have it easy or like nothing like that at all. But yeah, but yeah, I think you're, the barrier of entry, like just the things required to be able to prove yourself, uh, is is a little bit lower. This reminds um, me of, and I'm I'm going to admit to a personal failing of mine: reading social media comments. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, and I forget the context, but somebody somewhere had written something about why do you never see female orchestra conductors? The subtext was pretty evident. It was obviously something very sexist. I don't want to give yeah. it any more rational yeah, yeah, thought yeah, yeah. than that. Yeah. And you know, there, there were people who went on with that. Yeah, you know, now that you think about it, you've got all these past masters who are male. But obviously, if there were no opportunities for women, not just in the modern era, but historically through, for centuries, then you're not going to create a culture that expands to allow uh, to to allow women to enter it, to educate women, 
to give them positions where they can step up. And I say that with all the respect I can for the women who have done that in various orchestras and symphonies across the world. But for time immemorial, the conductor position was only ever available to men. And that is not going to change in a century or two. And I'm thinking it has got to be exactly the same for people of color. Somewhere out there, there's a social media comment that says, why do you never see people of color conducting oh, for orchestras? Sure. Yeah, oh, for sure. Actually, what's interesting there is that symphony orchestras and choirs overall are have two very um, prognoses on that. Uh, orchestral conducting is notoriously white and it's notoriously male. And part of it is a respect thing. And like it, it's absolutely awful, but it's, it, it takes so much more work for a woman to get full respect in command of an ensemble. And so it's not that they can't do it, but you know, if you don't want to put up with that, that noise, <laughs> then go off and do something else. And I mean, sure. Um, but choral music has actually generally been more even uh, choral directing in particular uh, have had more women and men and it's been closer and I and guess I should say sorry and you guess is why that oh, there's be, been more because, parity there well because because women are allowed to sing and it's it's too girly for men to sing sometimes mm-hmm. oh. and so uh, you know that there's there's a little opening there. And I, I, I will say that I, I'm very much less clear on white versus non-white in choral conducting, mm. but it's, it's in the past has been a little bit more open to variation than orchestral conducting has. But That's a good distinction. Gosh, yeah. And actually, maybe I should put this together. Since we'll be a good real podcast, I'll put together my links because I... I can think of, because my, my old orchestra teacher from Roosevelt High School, uh, Go Riders, yay, uh, Anna Edwards actually got her doctorate in choral conducting from the UW the same time I was getting my, my master's degree. And yeah. she has started like a composing sympo- uh, symposium, a conducting symposium, sorry, uh, that, that particularly uplifts non-male, non-white, and uh, oh, then I, yeah, no, and I, I have, I have, I have choir director friends all over the country because I literally went to choir college. And so all of my old classmates are off doing wonderful things. And, <laughs> and I'm here recording podcasts in my half moved in apartment with a harpsichord and a taco pinata behind me. <laughs> so, but that all said, after that weird tangent, back to deliberately creating opportunities and openings and visibility because this is where we go wow again that's awful Kara all of this is awful what can we do about it and I'm happy to say that especially since the George Floyd murder last last year and all the protests our music staff at St. Mark's have taken steps to to try to unlearn some of Western classical music's terrible 
tendencies to only, you know, go towards Bach or, you know, like whomever. Well, I mean, I, I have a picture of Bach behind me too, um, but he's not the only composer and white people are not the only people who've composed. And so John and, uh, and uh, Canon Kleinschmidt have both been programming organ preludes and postludes by non-white composers, a lot of Florence Price. And Rebecca always puts the best interests and the safety and the happiness of children first. And like, she has been adapting and, and doing like, it's just everything is, everything's great, but sorry. <laughs> Jeez, sorry. You need a moment uh, to compose yourself. I, I do need a moment to compose myself. I got a little like, I need a moment to finish my scotch. I was sorry. <laughs> I was just trying to think about it because I was like, I'm only, I'm not like complimenting Rebecca's musicality, and that's terrible. <laughs> Rebecca has shown that even if something, a situation, or a thought makes her uncomfortable, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. And, okay. you know, uh, I mean, just to really, really quickly link that back to microaggressions, as part of the whole tapestry of what we're doing, we did talk in our last episode about how if you notice you've done something, you've said something that wasn't great, uh, it doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It just means you made a mistake, which you should learn from and then not repeat that behavior in the future. And yeah. it sounds like not to single Rebecca out for that, yeah. but that there are people who have made an assumption about music, perhaps, who have made an assumption about singers or musicians. They've learned that that assumption was not correct. They've changed their thinking on that, and now they are working to ensure that that mistake doesn't happen for other musicians or singers or whatever the context might be. Um, that made perfect sense to me. Like, oh, good. I'm, I'm glad because now that we have you explaining it, oh, <laughs> good. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, but I particularly, um, I'm really excited because hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to have Oantiphons in person this year because, <laughs> because uh, we're, it's going to be the debut year of St. Mark's very first ever Anthem Commission. And what I mean by that, anthem, it's, it's a very loose term, but uh, the best example I can think of, of what this is modeled after is King's College, Cambridge. And, you know, every year they do the Nine Lessons and Carols that's broadcast on BBC and all over the world. And every year they have an anthem that they commission from a composer, uh, often with text that is pertinent to current events. Mm. Uh, not always. Sometimes it's sometimes it's a mass part. <laughs> but uh, I thought, you know, we could do this at St. Mark's too, because there was there was a bit of a scandal among some of my alumni that I will not go into here uh, last summer. And out of that, I realized that a good thing to do for non-white composers is to create composition opportunities specifically that seek out non-white composers. Create and, opportunities to specifically seek out non-white composers. Wow, that was a really silly sentence, wasn't it? Sorry. 
<laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I said it because of how, of how comprehensive it is. I mean, really create opportunities to, I mean, to be fair, the opportunities don't seek out the composers, but create right. opportunities that would be accessible. Yeah, for I guess by seeking out the composers right, right. Of who, who are non-white. Yeah. And this is, again, because, again, going back to the education kind of disparity and, you know, whose idea of what composition is or what church music would sound like. And so last summer, I asked uh, Canon Kleinschmidt about it, and he was really into it. And pretty soon, you know, he'd formed a committee because we're a good Episcopal parish. And uh, we reached out to some composers to see uh, who was available for this year. And uh, we have a composer from Pasadena, California, and uh, she has written an anthem that the cathedral choir will sing during O Antiphons this year. And we specifically chose O Antiphon because it's St. Mark's biggest, probably like, um multi not multifaceted liturgy but it's one of our biggest liturgies of the year yeah, and yeah. it's one that features many of the choirs that we have and All it's choirs, one i think i do remember i think before the closure we have five choirs singing yeah, at that year's orantifon oh gosh i don't even remember but yeah, I mean, it, but yeah we have both. we we pull out all the stops Literally. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, yes. You did make a music joke. Uh, congratulations. I'm really proud of you. <laughs> At any rate, uh, we chose our antiphons because it's it's always well publicized and yeah. because it's it's well loved in our community. It's been getting more and more crammed every year, which you know, and of course the Coplin Choir is a big draw, and uh, because I didn't want it to be like okay, we made this commission and we're going to sing it on the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. Because, you know, that's sort of like, okay, but... Honestly, to me, that would feel like tokenism. Yeah, well, exactly. It's like, it's a little insulting. But if we say we're going to carve out one spot for an anthem every year in one of our most popular popular liturgies. Yeah. So, like, that's... it's It's not solving everything in the world but it's setting an example for other cathedrals and, and, ha, 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 ha. something that uh, just came out to me just to really jump in for a sec is and i have to see if i can form this thought articulately is that O antiphons is so deeply steeped in anglican history, Anglican liturgy, Anglican theology, and Anglican music, obviously. But that shouldn't be an impediment to us trying to push the boundaries of what representation of music entails. Yeah, and that was actually exactly, well, not exactly, because it's just simply another reason why we thought Oantophones was a good good kind of facet for that because every antiphon has its own little advent message and frankly yeah. like this is sort of an advent step right you know we're as a interestingly i guess we're having 
hopefully an advent about social justice and all of this sort of thing, because the, the first step is to stop and wait and listen mm. and then think, how am I going to prepare myself for the Lord Jesus's birth or in this particular current event case for the realization that the world has to change in order to make it more equitable for everyone? So that was another, it was another thing where it was just like, oh good, this also matches what I was thinking. Like, I'm not going to lie. That was a, that was just a, <laughs> it was like, wow, cool. This all lines up. Yeah, exactly. But, but then <laughs> what's exciting too, actually, is that this year's Oantifons is, uh, we're going to repeat it in July because uh, the American Guild of Organists is holding its national convention in Seattle next summer. They asked, like, specifically, in fact, like two or three years ago now, they asked uh, Pan and Kleinschmidt if he and Jason Anderson would be willing to put together Oantifons for this convention because... Oh, my goodness. It's a well-known liturgy. I mean, Peter Halleck and Mel Butler and, yes, Michael Kleinschmidt are all... They're all very well-respected figures in Episcopal church music Absolutely. and, you know, the the Copland Choir and uh, many of the things that have sprouted from it and around it are are very well thought of. I mean, mm -hmm. I won't quite say revered because that's, you know, they, they don't need that for their egos, but like <laughs> they're well-respected. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no so, one will take that away from them. Yeah, exactly. And so it's, it was really exciting to be able to be like, here, we have this anthem that we're going to put into Oantifon. And plus, it gets more exposure next summer. Yeah. And it gets wider exposure. And so being able to, to have that extra exposure with the AGO, that's what the American Guild of Organists is referred to, uh, with the AGO convention next summer. The other thing that we made very sure to do and uh, that we actually took time as a committee to research for a couple of weeks is what is a fair stipend for a commission like this mm. uh, because there's so many examples this isn't just a church music thing this is any music person has experienced something along the lines of well I can't really give you anything more than maybe five dollars in free drinks, but it'll give you lots of exposure. Exposure. Oh yes, and everyone's like, "That's cool," but um, me playing for your set tonight isn't going to pay my bills unless mm -hmm. you pay me, right? Or same <laughs> thing. It's like, oh, we're going to have this like commission write an anthem for us. Like you'll get your name slapped on something cool. We're not going to take into account that you got a degree in composition. And that you have to sit down and compose and then revise and, you know, engrave. And there, there's a huge long process that, mm -hmm. you know, their, their time and effort and emotional energy needs to be paid for. So Professional energy. Yeah. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's what it is, it's, right? <laughs> but we, we came up with a stipend and... I don't know what witchcraft Canon Kleinschmidt used, but he managed to get it onto the Vestry's agenda like the next month. It was so wonderful. Wow. Yeah, like, credit wow. to Michael. Well, yeah, no, and I was like, this is great because like it's, he took it and he was like, this is going to be our priority. The thing too is with 
oh god god bless michael kleinschmidt god this is just kara loving everybody in the world in in this episode i guess <laughs> so you know uh canon kleinschmidt was supposed to take his sabbatical last summer right yeah. um but you know some some unknown world event happened and that ended up not being possible and mm-hmm. so he ended up going this year originally uh i believe that his sabbatical kind of thing uh was going to be going to germany and uh playing on like 17th through 18th and 19th century organs and taking some lessons from from germans and and that sort of fun thing uh but after this year uh his focus shifted and he he took that time to learn music by black composers and other non-white composers and i i think he still flew to oberlin to go because they Oberlin Music School is a, it's a big organ school and they have a lot of uh, what are referred to as historical instruments and so they're they're built in an older style I should say and uh, <laughs> so it's like you know that I I I'm really impressed that he he changed the entire focus of the sabbatical to respond to what was going on around him in in a field where he knew that he could make a difference like that like that's fantastic that's that's so great i it's just i mean it's like it's it's things like that that really help um normalize i guess hearing composers outside of central or you know western europe basically which is what a lot of the music we hear on sundays is from it's yeah. a lot of France, it's a lot of Germany, and it's a lot of England. Nothing wrong with that. There's a reason why we've been singing them for five centuries, but hmm. <laughs> but there's other stuff too. And again, John uh, Sentebeck has been making a point to program uh, composers that are outside of our, our usual known canon. And in fact, he played something, oh, I wish I could remember his name. I'm going to have to go look it up. A couple of weeks ago, Don played something by a Ugandan composer. And I think it was the first piece of organ music that I had ever heard that was written by like an African continent composer. Like, because I've heard music composed by African-American composers. Right. And of course, like that's great too, you know, and but it was like continent of Africa. I just oh my god again here again with Kara's America-centric brain I just never like put those two wires together (laughs) oh my gosh that's an entire world I must look up and explore so (laughs) and that's the fascinating thing I mean like you said thank god for the composers we've benefited from for centuries Mm -hmm. all the German ones the the French ones the British ones and you know other western european ones but can you imagine if we ever get to the point where the doors are kicked so fully open that we'll have organ music written by african composers from all so many countries within that continent organ music written by south american composers organ music written by asian composers yeah well and it's not that that hasn't existed but it hasn't been published into Western channels because and, it's yeah, very the, rarely taken as legitimate, yeah. unfortunately. I, th- I, th- 
it's it's really taken us legitimate, you know, to the point where here I am imagining it as a hypothetical. But as you said, that is out there, but mm-hmm. we just don't seek it. We don't recognize it. We don't create those opportunities to host it. Not not literally, but just to to be aware of it. So yeah, it's out there. Exactly. It's not a hypothetical. Well, I know, and especially with organs, like organs are literally built to imitate sound. Like that literally all the stop names are named after things that make sounds whether they're instruments or you know other well mostly instruments or you know human voice or something like that and so there's you know that's 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 what they do Mm. so (laughs) next time on representations with Kara and Michael I guess uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about representation in media Uh, And what we mean by that is what we see on TV, on the internet, in magazines, and all that sort of stuff. And why seeing people who look like you is really important. And kind of some of the effects of not seeing people who look like you all the time. And because that sounds strange, but it happens. And we'll talk about it next time. Kara, thank you. Thank you so much for this. I, I do yeah. want to say that speaking purely for myself, but I imagine for a few other people at St. Mark's who do not have a music background, there's so much of the music programs at the cathedral to love and appreciate, but also things that we take for granted and things that we don't understand. And so just to get a little bit of context for what goes into the music selections and the the thoughts of the music that we sing week in and week out and that we hear has been really, for me, just really edifying. And also thank you to, because I know they're listening, John Stonebeck, Rebecca Gilmore, <laughs> and Michael Kleinschmidt for certainly being so influential, so instrumental uh-huh. <laughs> sorry i couldn't help myself <laughs> for doing so much to make saint mark's music program what it is which is so well known and so well loved but also for doing even more on top of that because there is so much more we can do so much further to go but i have a really good feeling that we are on that road that's a good yeah, place certainly well, well thank you everyone for listening this has been a wonderful conversation with Kara Peace. And again, Kara, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your insights into oh, this. knowledge. <laughs> well, of course, again, just observations, but hopefully we can all learn a couple lessons. We will see you next time on Cathedral Conversations About Race. Bye.